Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood, the ISO 9000 Standard 2 guest today. Wanda Bertram of the Prison Policy Initiative will talk about some less appreciated brutalities of the American carceral state. And economist Francisco Perez will talk about the flaws of mainstream economics and a popular education curriculum that counters them. Most of us are familiar with the grim measurements of the American carceral state, most notably the 2 million people in prison, a number that relative to population has few rivals in the world. Even the state with the lowest incarceration rate, Massachusetts, jails five times the share of its population as Norway, and more than twice as many as France. The states with the highest rates, Louisiana and Oklahoma, imprison 20 times the share of their population as Norway, 10 times as many as France. But those aren't the only dimensions of our correctional nightmare. There are also parole, probation, and civil commitment. Here with Morris Wanda Bertram of the Prison Policy Initiative. They've recently done reports on these topics if you're interested in learning more. Here's Wanda Bertram. We're going to talk about a couple of forms of the correctional control beyond the usual prison and jail model. The American carceral state has so many varieties of control. It's uh, quite impressive. Um, first, community supervision, which is a general term for probation or parole. Could you define these terms uh, and just say something about how extensive they are? Yes, yes. Like you're saying, there's so many varieties to criminal punishment in the U.S. Um, that it takes a, a couple reports to touch on them all, um, which is why we released different reports uh, for incarceration. And then a new report we released a few weeks ago about correctional control, which is what we how we describe incarceration plus supervision. In most states, at least one in every hundred people are on probation or parole. Uh, so to put that into different context. If the population under probation and parole were its own state, it would be close to the size of Oklahoma. Many supposedly liberal states that have comparatively low rates of incarceration are actually hugely punitive when you take uh, their rates of probation and parole into account. If you look at Rhode Island's complete rate of probation, parole, prison, and jail, its rate, uh, its, its compound rate of those systems is about the same as Louisiana's. Louisiana being the most uh, incarcerated state in the country, right? Well, up until a couple of years ago, I think it's been supplanted by Oklahoma. They they, they kind of jockey for the the top spot every couple of years. Um, <laughs> what an honor! Whenever, yeah, no, and when whenever one of them falls into second place, the, they uh, they always celebrate. But um, you know, in, in any case, you look at liberal states such as Rhode Island, such as uh, Connecticut, which we did a report on recently that well, you and I can talk about. And these states, they put so many of their residents under community supervision that they look, when you look at, at, at all of it together, they appear much more punitive, right? They put way more people under probation and parole than is remotely necessary. Probation uh, and parole, just a quick definition of those two things. So parole is a part of a sentence. It's part of a sentence for a felony. Oftentimes, if you go to prison, um, you can be released on parole at the discretion of a parole board or in a, some other states like New York. Uh, it's it's kind of built into your sentence. You spend X number of years in prison and you spend Y number of years on parole. So parole is something that happens after you've completed a prison sentence. Nevertheless, it can go on for years. It can go on for decades. Um, I, I know people who are on parole effectively for the rest of their lives, right? Um, probation is something that uh, is supposed to be an alternative to incarceration. Well, and I guess parole is too, but probation is a, is a non-prison sentence for a crime. Um, you, you commit a, usually a lower level offense, you meet certain criteria, and the court decides to put you on probation instead of sending you to prison. Neither of these things is a walk in the woods, right? It sounds like a lot easier than prison, but it's, it's no, a lot of hoops to jump through. That's right. That's right. Um, if you're if you're under one of these systems, I mean, you are um, you are constantly under surveillance. That's that's the whole point. You're facing several different terms and conditions that you have to comply with every day. Oftentimes, those terms and conditions include things like maintaining housing and maintaining employment. Uh, so, if you lose your job, that can be a violation of probation or parole. It frequently includes, you know, maintaining sobriety, so passing frequent, um, passing frequent drug tests. If you fail a drug test, that can, that can be a violation. Uh, if you miss a, a meeting with your probation or parole officer, 
that can be a violation of probation or parole. So people are spending years or decades of their lives in these systems where if you mess up, if you backslide, or even, you know, even, even in circumstances that you have no control over, you can still go to jail for that. If you violate the terms of these things, you, you go back to jail or go to jail in the first place. That's right. Yeah. People who are on probation, they have not necessarily had any experience of being in jail. So this would be their first experience, which would be quite a shock. It could be. I, I mean, I think a lot of people who are under supervision do have jail experience. And one of the things that we've called out in the past about probation is that it targets the same people that incarceration targets, demographically speaking. Uh, the majority of people who are on probation, close to 70% have incomes under $20,000 a year. 30% of people on probation and parole are Black right? These are the same, it's the same demographic breakdown in many ways as the prison system. And so, you know, a lot of these folks are, if they haven't been in jail before, if they haven't been in prison before, they're still going through the system in a kind of assembly line way in the same way that poor black people go to prison, go to jail in sort of an assembly line form of justice. And how often do they make mistakes of deeming something a violation and throwing people in jail? How often is that done wrongly? So just to, to take a second talking about one state in particular, because we've done this report a couple weeks ago, we did this report about Connecticut. To take a second to talk about that, in a typical year, uh, about 900 people on parole in Connecticut are accused of a parole violation and they face having their parole revoked. Um, now, more than one third of those cases result in people having their parole reinstated. I, I do want to be careful, though, because I wouldn't necessarily classify that as a mistake, right? That's a parole officer saying, um, you know, I think that you did something wrong. And that is completely within the design of the system. That's completely within the system's right to do. It's sort of like having your own personal prosecutor that follows you around all the time. They accuse you of doing something wrong. Maybe they're right. Maybe they're, maybe they're incorrect. That's the system. That's the, that's the, that's the deal of being on parole or probation. Nevertheless, I mean, I think the, the, the really critical thing to look at is uh, in Connecticut, People going through the system, people going through the parole revocation process, about 50% of them lose their housing and about 80% of them lose their jobs. So whether or not they're actually found guilty and have their parole revoked, their, their lives are completely upended by this. And, and that's extremely wasteful. Speaking of wasteful, um, how expensive are these systems? Hugely expensive. Um, it's expensive if you're looking at, especially if you're looking at the cost of, of incarcerating people who are on probation and parole. One other way in which I think these systems fail to really um, distinguish themselves from the prison system and to you know, present meaningful alternatives to incarceration is that they actually account for 42% of admissions to prison every single year. Whether they're, people are being violated for new crimes that they're you know, supposedly committing or they're violated for what's called technical violations of supervision, which are the, you know, missing a meeting, failing a drug test that I mentioned earlier, those kinds of things. Collectively, admissions to prison for all of those reasons, they account for over 40% of admissions to prison in this country every single year. Uh, so you consider the cost of incarceration, and I think that cost needs to be included in the cost of these systems. And, you know, then you're, you're, you know, you're looking at in Connecticut, if you're putting someone in jail, that's it's over, I think it's about $1,200 a day per person. And a lot of these costs actually end up falling on incarcerated people themselves. There's daily fees that are imposed on people who are under supervision, who are uh, sent to jail for an accused violation. This is a stunning thing. I mean, people who are sent to jail or put otherwise under correctional supervision are charged for the privilege. Uh, and it's not just Connecticut, right? A lot of states do this. Um, what, what's the extent of that? Could you describe that? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, people are frequently charged either one-time or regular fees uh, for, uh, you know, as you say, the privilege of being on community supervision. Connecticut charges a $200 one-time fee, I believe. And then if, you're, if part of your supervision is participating in a rehabilitative program, or you know some kind of drug treatment, or et cetera, et cetera. Like you're you're usually paying fees to participate in those programs. God knows why the state decided you know chooses to do this. It's probably some somebody somewhere probably said we want to we want to you know make them experience the, all of the trials and tribulations of the real world where you have to pay for healthcare through the nose, right? But people are often paying for ankle monitors as well if you're on an ankle monitor. Uh, I read this you know stunning report recently about electronic monitoring. And I think it was from the Fines and Fees Justice Center that uh, showed that electronic monitoring fees are often in the neighborhood of five or ten or even twenty dollars per day. 
so people who are who have ankle monitors, who are often people on probation or on parole, are paying daily fees for those. And that doesn't even cover the fees that people pay if they're incarcerated for an alleged violation. In Connecticut, if you're on parole and you're incarcerated pending a parole revocation hearing, you're paying $250 per day for the privilege of being incarcerated. These are systems that effectively extract a massive amount of money. This is the important part. They extract a massive amount of money from poor people, from disproportionately Black people, and they run on this money as well. This is all, you know, what our society chooses to do, not as an alternative to incarceration, ultimately, but as an alternative to actually caring for people and providing people with the treatment and the health care and the housing that they need. Now, just listening to the term community supervision, it sounds you know, like a humane alternative to incarceration. But as you've described, it's, it's really not. Um, but um, is there a way to do this humanely? Is this a way of you know, out of the carceral state if we rethink this? It's funny that you say community supervision sounds like a nice alternative to incarceration because I've gotten so used to hearing the term um, in, in doing our work that it, it now sounds sinister to me, precisely because it, it takes the conditions of incarceration and it brings them into the community. A lot of people actually say, you know, when they're faced with a choice between probation and going to prison, they just say, I'd rather be in prison. They, they really would because they, because it, it, you know, all of the supervision, all of the surveillance, the constant fear that you're under, all the fees, all the requirements, having to do things like, you know, you, you know, you're required to show up for regular meetings with your parole officer and you have to go to class and you have to keep a job and you have no money and you have to pay fees. It's just too much for people. You know, it's psychological torture. Is there a way to do this humanely? I don't know. I do think that in a society like ours, we really need to be rethinking putting people uh, into systems that are supposedly partly disciplinary, right? Dis disciplining them and then partly helping them because we haven't really been able to, so far we have not found a way to come down on the care side of that line. These systems are still extremely punitive. Um, and just to quote one statistic from a, rep a report we did recently, 70% of people on supervision with a substance use disorder are not getting the treatment that they need. 70%. And of people on, on parole and probation with an opioid use disorder, I think th only 30% are getting medication-assisted treatment. These are not systems that are actually getting people care. So I think the first step is to kind of stop pretending that they in any, you know, in any remote way resemble what they bill themselves as. And of course, I, I presume that they're certainly not getting any mental health support if they need that. Well, I think some of them are, but yeah, I, I, if I recall correctly, about 30 to 40% say, yeah, and, and this is self-reported, about 30 to 40% of people on, under these systems say, I have a mental illness and I'm not getting the treatment that I need for it. I'm speaking with Wanda Bertram of the Prison Policy Initiative. And now New York State has uh, enacted a reform, a Less is More Act. Uh, what's that about? Yes. Uh, our new report on Connecticut, where we recommend certain solutions to Connecticut's huge rates of probation and parole, particularly probation, our recommendations in that report are based on New York's Less is More Act, which was enacted in September 2021. So until that legislation was passed, New York was you know, one of the one of the leaders in the country when it came to locking people up for uh, non-criminal violations of probation and parole. And the impact of less is more was massive. It uh, almost immediately led to thousands of people being released from prisons and jails because they were incarcerated on these really minor violations that were not crimes, uh, or at least would not be crimes for people like you and me who are not under supervision. So things like failing drug tests or losing your job. So that was that yielded um, a, a huge reduction in the carceral population that actually uh, helped empower the legislature to decide to close six uh, New York state prisons. But what I think is even more encouraging and even more inspiring about this law is that it, it created a system uh, called earned time for people who are on supervision. Now, earned time is where you can, by demonstrating good behavior, you can reduce your own supervision sentence. So in New York, for every 30 days of good behavior, no violations, uh, you earn 30 days off your supervision sentence. And within, I think, less than two years, by applying this earned time system, and I think they did it retroactively, I think they also calculated earned time retroactively for folks who had been showing good behavior, more than 17,000 people had been discharged early from parole. And that cut the number of people on parole in New York by nearly 40%. So you just it just goes to show 
how bloated these systems are that you can reduce it by that much simply by implementing a system that gets people off supervision early for good behavior. Um, but people are currently, you know, spending years or decades on parole. And so these are some of the reforms that we suggest that could, that could help ameliorate that. Civil commitment, another aspect of uh, the American carceral state that receives almost no attention at all. Uh, what is it? This is something else that you know we wanted we wanted to bring up in our recent reporting on um, non incarceration forms of of criminal punishment. Civil commitment is the process or is the practice of taking people who have already served a criminal sentence, usually for a sex offense, and detaining those people indefinitely in facilities that are um, supposed to rehabilitate them from whatever psychological condition uh, supposedly led to their committing the original crime. And when we released this, when we released this report recently, I thought something kind of interesting happened. Things that impact people convicted of sex offenses, in, as you might imagine, are not getting tons and tons of um, of play in the media because um, you know, it's they're not a very sympathetic crowd. But we got tons of responses from journalists interested in talking about this, and the the reason was most of them had no idea that this was happening. And you know that's not their fault. It's it's because there is a, a serious lack of data. Um, on these systems in this country. We know, for instance, that more than 6,000 people across 20 states were confined in civil commitment facilities in 2022, um, approximately. We, we have a ballpark idea of the number, but we also know that it could be as much as 10,000 because the data reporting is so bad. And that has to do with the fact that these are, and I can get into this more later, but it has to do with the fact that these are, these are facilities that are often run through the Department of Departments of Health as opposed to departments of corrections. Um, and so they don't face the same reporting requirements to BJS that departments of corrections do. But it's, it's happening, it's happening in, in states kind of all over the country. And what's it like inside these things? What are the conditions like? Well, this is, you know, this is one of the issues that we, you know, is that we don't know very much about, you know, what life is like in there. But there have been, you know, again, and this is because there is so little transparency and there is so little data reporting done by these facilities about, for instance, you know, what kinds of regimens and programs they're, they're subjecting people to. But we wrote about this recently. We wrote about civil commitment recently because we have some new data uh, of a colleague of mine, Emma Williams. Um, she co-authored this report in Illinois, uh, where she lives. Uh, she's part of a volunteer-run group that did a study of folks detained at the Rushville Treatment and Detention Facility. Uh, and what these people reported is is really, really disturbing. They report having um, been subjected to chemical castration, so hormone injections that inhibit your erection. Um, these have been linked to long-term health impacts, uh, besides being just all around really creepy. Um, they're subjected to something called the penile polysmograph, which is a, a device that is attached to someone's penis while they're shown sexually suggestive content to see if you're aroused by various things routinely subjected to uh, lie detector tests, which have been inadmissible in Illinois courts since 1981. In other words, they're using, the way that I like to describe it to people is that um, the, the quote unquote treatment for people who've committed sexual offenses, it is in itself um, uh, uh, invasive and creepy. And uh, how long a sentence do these people have? Is it indefinite? It is indefinite. It's uh, you're you're incarcerated there until a rotating cast of medical staff decides that you are fit to go home. Decides that you have overcome whatever psychological abnormality or um, or disease that you had that was you know that was leading you to want to commit crimes. And what what we found is that at Rushville, um, I think the average length of detention was almost ten years. So the a substantial number, if not the majority of people who are in civil commitment have been there for at least a decade, which is, I think itself kind of calls into question the idea that this treatment works. To underscore the point, this is for people who have not committed a crime. They may have served a sentence uh, for a crime they did commit, but the design is to prevent future crimes? Right, right. So so the idea here is that that there are people... Um, let me take a step back. So, so around the turn of the, of the millennium, um, in the 90s and the early 2000s, 20 states, D.C. and the federal government passed these laws called sexually violent persons laws uh, that enable states to keep people locked up who have served, ser who have been serving time for certain crimes. So this is not part of your original sentence. It's something where if staff in the Department of Corrections 
subject you to various psychiatric tests or just decide for whatever reason that you pose a continued threat to the community, they can keep you locked up. They can, as soon as your prison sentence is over, they can transfer you to a civil commitment facility um, and then they can keep you there. They can keep you there indefinitely. So this is not something where a judge goes, you're going to serve X number of years in prison and then you're going to serve Y number of years in a civil commitment facility. Um, it's not something, I think the, the processes for determining who goes to civil commitment vary by state. This is something where a, a DOC official, someone who is on staff, is just subjecting you to various tests and then saying, okay, this person seems dangerous. We're going to keep them locked up until they don't seem dangerous anymore. And one of the things that's especially disturbing to me about this is that they are often using as part of their decision-making process for who goes to commitment, what's called a risk assessment tool. You might've heard of these before as they apply to pretrial release, um, deciding who goes free before their trial in, in local criminal justice systems. But these are tools that use uh, they use statistical information from previously incarcerated people to kind of come up with a, a demographic profile of you as an individual. And um, based on that profile, they decide, okay, is this person likely to reoffend? What's, in, what's, what's interesting is that these, um, these risk assessment tools actually have, uh, they have a lot of biases baked into them. And just to, just to quote one that's particularly explicit, um, although most of them are a little bit more implicit than this, the static 99 risk assessment tool is notably homophobic. It assigns a point, an extra risk point to people who have a same sex, quote unquote, same sex victim. So people who are homosexual, people who are LGBTQ are being treated as riskier by states that use this risk assessment tool. And as a result, um, LGBTQ people are vastly overrepresented in civil commitment facilities. This is appalling. Uh, I suppose you're going to turn this over to ChatGPT at some point. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 who knows if ChatGPT would do a better job? Yeah, it's, 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 already, it's already in that neighborhood. Do these programs do anything for the public? I mean, does it make people safer? Is there any evidence of that? There is no evidence, really. The, the, thing about these, the thing about the treatments that people are being subjected to is that they have not really been subjected to rigorous study, right? They haven't been thoroughly studied to actually see if these treatments, quote unquote, work. You know, obviously, there's, there's a question to be asked of, you know, even if this, even if this did work, um, you know, th- this is clearly unconstitutional, um, to be keeping people locked up indefinitely when it's not when it's not as punishment for any crime, but yeah, I mean that's an issue as well. This sort of thing, um, civil commitment, uh, community supervision. When somebody gets let out of one of these programs uh, and maybe commits a crime, this is the kind of thing that sets the New York Post off. I mean, how much of this is driven by fear of bad press? I mean, at this point, and this is what's really kind of scary about it. It's not really driven by anything at all. Right. These laws, these these facilities, you know, they were incepted in around the year 2000. Um, this was during, you know, this was during the, the age of tough on crime rhetoric that was beginning to turn to or, to or to focus, you know, pretty highly on people who commit sex offenses as, you know, the quote unquote worst of the worst of the worst. Right. We can do criminal justice reform, but not for these people. They passed these laws and they created these facilities at a time when they could get away with doing this. And it's been sort of set it and forget it. There's now, you know, just in New York state, for example, there's, um, you know, you're pushing 400 people right now locked up uh, under these laws. And it's, it's, it's not even a question of what's driving it because most people don't even know that it exists. And this, of course, uh, is kind of related to the sex offender registries. Uh, people get let out, but they have to uh, be on a, a listed in a directory forever. And they're under all sorts of constraints in how they live their lives. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that I think that people are beginning to, you know, I think there, there is some movement in the policy space towards understanding that the registry is not, um, registries don't, don't yield public safety benefits and some, some increased focus on, you know, the really, really harmful aspects of registries, like forcing people who uh, don't have a permanent address, uh, i.e. are homeless, uh, to check in with the police department like once a week. Um, and, you know, totally upending their lives. So, but, you know, but I think that overall, you know, the issue of civil commitment is, is not getting a lot of attention. It's not being treated in the same way. And I wish it would. That was Wanda Bertram of the Prison Policy Initiative. You can find the report she talked about on their website, prisonpolicy.org. That's prisonpolicy.org. 
Wanda mentioned that, among many other things, people are often forced to pay for their ankle monitors, which are often used as an alternative to paying cash bail or are used to track released inmates. Most people who are forced to wear ankle monitors don't have the resources of Sam Bankman freed, so the fees can be a serious burden. In Missouri, the price is $300 to set it up and $10 a day thereafter. A profile of an e-carcerated, as they say, woman in Alabama on AL.com reports that not only does she have to pay $10 a day for the monitor, but she also has to pay $50 a month for drug testing and $40 a month for her probation officer. Offender-funded justice, it's called, and it's an outrage. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of prison bound by social distortion. Next, economics. Economics is one of the most mystified of all fields of inquiry, presided over by an arrogant priesthood that acts as if mere civilians are too stupid to understand the world of getting and spending. It doesn't have to be that way. The fundamentals of economics are comprehensible by almost anyone, but it's not easy to find a place to start. Here's a good one Economics for Emancipation, an online course put together by the Center for Economic Democracy and the Center for Popular Economics. The CPE was founded in 1979 by people around the University of Massachusetts Economics Department, and in 2019, it began a partnership with the CED to transform its curriculum into an economics for emancipation. To talk about why mainstream economics is the way it is, and how people can get around the mystifications of the field, I'm joined by Francisco Perez. He's a senior economist with the Center for Economic Democracy and assistant professor of economics at the University of Utah. Francisco Perez. A lot of civilians find economics completely obscure, off-putting, intimidating, alienating. I'm sure you're familiar with this, but why do you think that is? Economics, as you well know, is the language of power, right? So I think it is made purposefully obscure. I don't want to say it's a conspiracy, but I do think there is a certain element of powerful policymakers, politicians, and, and academic economists who have an interest in, in keeping the rest of us out of these discussions. So we all live the economy. All of us have jobs and pay bills and mortgages and buy stuff and deal with inflation and unemployment and interest rates and all of that. But we're told it's too complicated for you. You can't understand it. You need a PhD in economics just to just to get your foot in the door. And I think it's because they don't actually want us to participate in these economic discussions. They don't want us to really understand how the budget works, how stimulus works, how contractionary monetary and fiscal policy could work. It's really about keeping people out, right? Making sure that the discussion is, is exclusive only to the powerful. And if you go back a century or so or a little further, economics was written in pretty clear English prose. I mean, you had to have some familiarity with complex thought, but uh, it's gotten so mathematized over the decades that uh, it becomes almost impossible for a non-specialist to comprehend what's going on. What do you make of that? You know, that's a big discussion within economics. Um, and you're right, you know, before, if you pick up any kind of economics textbook or book before, and, and economists used to write books, right? That that alone tells you how things <laughs> have changed. From the 1940s or earlier, they're all written in sort of literary literary economics, right? They're all written in English. And, you know, they talk about economic concepts, but they do so using words. 
There are some advantages to math. Part of the reason why that the switch happened starting in the 1940s was that the math makes you be more precise. It's easier to get kind of lost in English. But the downside, which, you know, in my opinion, that the costs here have, have certainly outweighed the benefits is it then means that one, economists think that they're doing physics, right? They think that uh, you can treat society and, and, and human behavior as you would an apple falling from a tree, uh, as if you know people always respond the exact same way. And then two, it means that you have to have a certain level of math, which is honestly not that complicated, but you still have to have studied math at at least a college level to be able to understand this stuff. So I feel like it has those two kind of deleterious effects. One, it gives it a precision and sense of authority that it shouldn't really have. Again, we're, we're human beings studying other human you know, behavior and human beings are a moving target. And then two, it means that if you don't have the, the quantitative skills, you can't participate. I think Joan Robinson said uh, that uh, next to physics, economics is like astrology. Yes. <laughs> what kinds of people are attracted to the profession? You know, off the top of my head, it's say it's really dominated by nerdy white guys. And when you get to the Larry Summers level, you have to add arrogant to the descriptors. So is this a fair picture of the, the sociology of, of, of the profession? Yes. The only thing I would add is depending on where you are, you might get a decent dose of nerdy, arrogant Asian men as well. Yeah. So why is that? What's the attraction and how does that shape the discipline? And how does this I guess they're, they're kind of mutually reinforcing the personnel shape the discipline, the discipline shape the personnel. Uh, could you talk about uh, that relationship? You're right. There is a clear sociology here. Econom economics is very clearly kind of classed, raised and gendered, mostly, like you said, nerdy white guys. And it attracts not just nerdy white guys, but a certain kind of nerdy white guy that likes a sort of counterintuitive thinking. I, I, I refer to this as sort of Freakonomics syndrome, right? So it's the idea that everything in economics is counterintuitive and it, it uh, appeals to people who are hard-headed. It reminds me of Albert Hirschman's sort of Jeopardy hypothesis, right, that conservatives often make, which is you're, you're, you know, you're trying to help people, but in trying to do the right thing, you end up hurting those folks. So for example, you care about poor people, you want to raise minimum wages or establish a minimum wage, but that just leads to greater unemployment. You care about homeless people, you want to make sure that everyone has a house, so you impose rent control, but that just leads to less building and or maintenance of existing buildings. It appeals to people who love that kind of want. The whole like, you think you're doing the right thing. I am, I who am more clever than you can understand how you're getting this all wrong. Well, that's a very superficial contrarianism though, because it ends up reinforcing the status quo, even though it looks on the surface like it's perverse. That's the, the entire trick. So you can pass yourself off as being counterintuitive while completely embracing the status quo. So it's, you know, essentially it's, let me tell you why this is the best of all possible worlds and we should do nothing else. There are very few economics departments in the U.S. that are uh, friendly to radical or non-mainstream approaches, right? Uh, as I recall, it's like three or four, uh, but I haven't fully kept up. Uh, what's the landscape look like? The landscape is bleak. Uh, as you said, there's three or four. So I'm fortunate to be at one of them, the University of Utah. Uh, and I studied at another, the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. The other is the sort of the new school for social research in New York. There's the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and Colorado State. So, you know, there's only a handful of places where you can even challenge the idea that capitalism is not the greatest thing since sliced bread. The economics profession, because it is closer to power, is more ideologically policed than the other social disciplines. Uh, as we were joking earlier, there is no council of sociological or anthropological advisors. There maybe should be, but there isn't. What economists say has a, a different weight. It's easier to dismiss radical critiques coming out of sociology or history or philosophy as sort of these people don't understand economics, right? They don't understand the dollars and cents, and therefore we can just sort of dismiss them. Economists are very snooty about other disciplines. So, you know, you'd think that the study of economics would uh, be aided by anthropology or sociology or you know even cultural studies. Psychology, money is a very complicated thing. <laughs> their, their whole bunch of approaches you could have to um, the production and distribution of resources. But uh, economists are very um, jealous about guarding the uh, the boundaries of the discipline. It's even worse than that, because I would say not only are they jealous about guarding the, the borders of economics as discipline, they're also, you know, there's economic imperialism. Economics has gone out and conquered political science, uh, especially in, in, in sociology, right? Everyone now uses sort of similar econometric methods, rational choice models, where you assume that everyone is sort of homo economicus, it's worse than that. And I feel like a lot of economics looks like amateur statisticians doing amateur sociology. 
And I say amateur because they refuse to read or cite or listen to insights from other fields. So you end up either saying something completely wrong or simply reinventing the wheel. Things that, are, that have been long known and established in other fields, economists will be like, you know, so you got kind of a Columbus syndrome as well, where people are like, I just discovered that if you give money to the women in the household, then that money will go to the children. Sociologists and, and other feminist scholars of all stripes will say, well, we knew that decades ago, for example. This kind of stuff happens all the time. They're incredibly arrogant, which again, is part of the sociology of the field. Yeah, and I quoted to you earlier, I think Paul Krugman said that uh, bad uh, economists are reincarnated as sociologists, which is just a remarkable thing to say. If you were studying economics seriously, you have to look at social classes. Occupational structures are all very uh, shot through a sociology, yet they're not really interested in that, that, that approach. It's all uh, their own little narrow conception of the world. Well, again, you want to turn things into a set of equations, right? All of that messiness doesn't fit into the math. It makes the math more difficult or impossible. So you just abstract it away. Even though, you know, we all live in an economy that is incredibly racialized and gendered and ethicized, right? If I told you we just ordered lunch and someone came to our door to deliver that food, you have an idea of what that person looks like. None of that fits into economics. We also have an idea of how that person came to be doing that job. Immigrant, most likely. Poorly paid immigrant, possibly living very you know, crowded uh, housing conditions. Uh, here in New York City, we became very used to uh, the housing conditions they live in during COVID when uh, many of them really fell ill because of uh, very crowded housing. Those kinds of questions pre-market questions, economists call them, are just not of uh, very much interest to uh, the discipline. Yeah, all of that is is swept away under endowments. This person, this uh, immigrant worker who's you know delivering food, just has an endowment of physical and human capital skills that just drop from the sky. There's no history of, of colonialism or imperialism and exploitation and trade, migration, NAFTA, none of that factors in. Okay, so let's talk about uh, your um, instructional module. And your approach more generally, what's the uh, the Center for Popular Economics approach uh, and how is it different from the mainstream? The Center for Popular Economics has been around since 1979. We're a collective of political economists based at UMass Amherst. So students, faculty, and alumni of the program, of the economics program. We obviously engage in academic discussions and debates. We publish papers and books and go to conferences and all of that, but realized that we also wanted to talk to people outside of the proverbial ivory tower, right? So this uh, organization was born originally to do workshops and trainings uh, with rank and file uh, union workers and union stewards. It is called the Center for Popular Economics because it's supposed to be based on popular education, right? So popular education has a long history. Uh, if any of your listeners have heard of Paulo Freire, are aware of Freire's pedagogy, you know, there's a famous good book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. That is one version of popular education. So we try to use those methods, which are in many ways very much opposed to uh, traditional academic uh, classroom instruction, right? So we assume popular education starts with what do people know? It's supposed to draw on people's experiences. So we assume that you already understand a lot of economics. You may not have the words and terms, but you you have these experiences. Um, so you, we start there, right? So it isn't a traditional classroom where we're going to just sit there and lecture at you for 45 minutes. We're going to start with, what do you already know? What can you already bring to the, to, to the discussion? And then we move through a series of uh, activities. We try to make it as interactive as possible. Obviously, the online curriculum is not fully popular education because popular education, we require that we be in person and have an ongoing relationship, that we know each other, that this be part of an ongoing kind of organizing effort. So our curriculum is more sort of popular education inspired. It comes from people who've done that kind of work. Uh, we try to use it, again, assume that people know what know their own experiences, know the economy, and that there are multiple ways of knowing, right? So uh, we assign books and articles, right? I'm, I'm a text-heavy person, but not everyone learns that way. So we also do short videos. We suggest podcasts, you know, this we recommend uh, behind the news to, to people that want to keep up with what's going on. We try to hit people from multiple angles and start from your ordinary day-to-day -day experience, right? So we're not going to say, we're not going to start with, what is the Federal Reserve? We start with, do you know how much money you're paying on your credit card bill? What's your, the interest rate on your credit card bill, for example? I'm speaking with Francisco Perez of the Center for Economic Democracy. When I talk to people who don't have any you know, background or exposure to economics, often their instincts are correct. 
The whole thing is is designed to make the rich richer. You're making the boss richer. There's a whole lot of greed and self-interest involved. And uh, when you take you know a standard economics 101 course, you're supposed to transcend that kind of instinctive knowledge in, in favor of you know all the mystifications of the field. You know, it seems like you can really work with people's instinctive um, understanding of, of the field um, and develop those rather than trying to um, use orthodox uh, ideology to uh, kick it out of them. Yeah, so I, I would actually push back against that a little bit because I would say part of what we're trying to do is, is say, yes, economics is intuitive. And let's talk about the moments where your intuition fails. And I think the mainstream does the same thing. They just make <laughs> different intuitions. So to give you an example, right? Right now, we're all debating inflation. If I, When I get up in front of groups and say, do you agree that inflation is caused by greedy corporations? Most people say yes. Right? Like It's common sense. Who sets the prices? The prices are going up. Who do we blame? The people who set prices. In that case, economists will tell you, no, your intuition is completely wrong. Uh, but then we can also talk about things like monetary policy, right? And there, you know, sort of economists love the, the intuition of the, 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 the government or the country as a household, right? So there's a certain amount of money that we cannot possibly spend. And if we do, then bad things will happen. And there we tell people, you know, your intuition is wrong. Do not think of the government or the national economy as you would your household because you don't print your own money. In many ways, it's it's about that discussion of where where should you listen to your gut, right? Where's your common sense leading you in the right direction? And where do you need to kind of think more counterintuitively, right? Most of us live in a, in a sort of hard money world where if you don't have the money in your bank account to spend on something, then you simply can't buy it. Governments and, and some major corporations live in a very different world. The fundamental point stands, I do think most people's intuition is correct. And a lot of what we do at the very beginning is tell people, trust your gut, right? You've been told you don't know this, you don't understand it, you're not smart enough to get it, when in fact, you do understand a lot of it, if not most of it already. Talk some about what's in this curriculum. What are the ingredients? What are the uh, the, the features? Yeah, so we have seven modules, uh, and I'll go through them quickly. There's a lot in them in each one. But first, just explain to people what is an economy? What is it that people do all day? And we begin with the basic insight from, from Marxist feminism that the economy is just much, much larger than what we see reported in the business press. Uh, then what we think of as sort of the formal economy where there's receipts and paychecks and numbers, you know, GDP. The economy is all the ways that we provision for society, right? So we start there, right? The economy is sort of much bigger. It's all the work that we do to take care of each other and ourselves. Then we get into some very basic Marxist economics. So we start with use value and exchange value, right? What is the commodity and the contradictions of the commodity form, which again, sounds very abstract, but we start with what is the difference between thinking of housing as shelter, right? As a place for people to live versus thinking of housing as a speculative financial asset, and how does that explain a lot of our problems in terms of house of homelessness and rising difficulty, you know, with affording housing? Uh, we get into what we call the three C's of exchange, which comes from David Graeber's work. Um, so we've renamed some of the concepts that he uses. And we talk about, look, already in our economy, right? So most of capitalism is based on commodities, on production for sale, for profit. But that's not all the production there is, even in our very hyper-capitalist society, right? So many already we have many kind of traditional, to not say kind of feudal and patriarchal norms, right? Where people do uh, work for others based on status hierarchy, right? So think of a woman cooking a meal for her husband, for example, in a, in a traditional patriarchal household. And then we also do share, we do have communal nature, right? So, you know, David Graeber always joked about um, if you stepped outside and asked someone for a cigarette, at least in the 90s, they wouldn't charge you for it. Today's Memorial Day, I'm sure people are having barbecues. If your cousin charged you for a hot dog, you would be offended. Even though that hot dog itself was a commodity that your cousin may have purchased, when they cook it for you and set it to you on a plate, they're not charging you for it. We get into surplus value, the sort of basics of exploitation and why capitalism is so technologically dynamic, right? So why did capitalism bring you the iPhone? Uh, and then we, you know, we talk about social reproduction, um, paid care work, all the work that we do, not simply what we do as part of the paid formal economy. We talk about the circuit of capital as module two. So how do capitalists make their money? It's also essential for organizers to understand the kind of pain and pressure points that the businesses they're organizing against feel. Uh, so if you're organizing a campaign, it's important to know where exactly along that circuit of capital you could, be, you could intervene. And then we also use this to talk about the history of racial capitalism, right? So we talk about the two of the most important circuits of capital historically. First, the triangular trade and, and, and the rise of 
the North American colonies and the Caribbean and, and British imperialism. And then we talk about cotton, how the Industrial Revolution, the first factories in Manchester and in Northern England were turning slave-grown cotton, mostly from the U.S. South, into textiles. That is the origin story of industrial capitalism. We talk about the redistribution recognition paradox, which comes from the feminist philosopher Nancy Fraser. It's our way of talking about race, class, and gender, right? So there is both a material component. People of color, women have less employment, less housing, less healthcare, less income and wealth. And then there's also a, what uh, Marxists would call a superstructural or, or cultural component, visibility in the media, leadership positions in academia and the government and business. Um, you know, so we use it to talk about, you know, socialists generally push for redistribution, right? Universal social programs. Identity politics is a lot about the politics of representation. So how do we untie this knot? My favorite module is the one on the flavors of socialism. We developed uh, as a result of the 2016 election when Bernie first uh, ran for president and a lot of people started calling themselves socialists and it was obvious they had no idea what that meant. And, you know, we just developed a module uh, around uh, an activity where people were working at two fictional firms to help, you know, people concretize these ideas and think about who makes decisions at the firm level. And we used to talk about the differences in socialism, right? So are we talking socialism as social democracy a la Sweden? Or are we talking socialism like central planning a la Soviet Union, market socialism like Yugoslavia? Or are we talking about something else that hasn't been tried, some paracon style economy, participatory economics, uh, some you know as yet unrealized utopia? Then we get into the evolution of capitalism in the U.S., Module six talks about fiscal and monetary policy and frames it in terms of sound versus functional finance, right? Again, do we think of the government as a household that is constrained by how much money, by a certain amount of money, or, or, or should we think of finance in more sort of functional terms? And then the last module gets into what is the world we want to see? So we define uh, what is a solidarity economy, which is an economy where we have democratic control over our workplace, residence, you know, slash land, finance, and our government, our budget, so participatory budgeting. And then we wrap up with how do we get there, right? So all of these were developed in discussion with social justice activists. So, you know, they, they pushed us to say, well, it's not enough to criticize capitalism. It's not enough to talk about what post-capitalist alternatives could look like. How the hell do we get there? <laughs> so we incorporated the work of the Marxist sociologist, Eric Goldman Wright. He talks about interstitial, ruptural, and symbiotic strategies for change. Uh, we prefer the terms tame, smash, and escape, right? So you can tame a system, you can try to reform it, you can try to smash a system, which is sort of the old school Leninist strategy, or you can try to escape the system, right? Which is, you know, generally more of an anarchist strategy. So we cover all of that, um, you know, so if you're interested in any or all of it, please check out economicsforemancipation.net. What do you find people are most interested in when they go through this uh, curriculum? So it depends on where people are politically. So the folks who are sort of new to movement, who are just sort of thinking about this stuff, are drawn to the first two modules, right? Just sort of what is the economy? What is capitalism? Helping make sense of the world as is. And then folks who have, who've been organizing for, for a few years, who have been union stewards for a while, who've thought about, I know that this is wrong or I have some very strong sense that stuff is wrong, but I'm not sure what comes next or how we change it tend to be more attracted to the module on, on the flavors of socialism, right? What are all the alternatives? And that last module that I described, you know, how do we get to this world? Those sort of four are, are the ones that people are most attracted to, again, depending on what level they're at. You know, Mike said, my favorite one is the flavors of socialism. That's the one I wish I could do with, with all left-wing activists in the U.S. Finally, um, your bio says uh, you're a solidarity economy activist. Um, what uh, does that mean? So the solidarity economy is a name for a set of ideas that's very old. It's the idea that, you know, we should have direct democratic control over the economy, right? So I, I went over it briefly earlier, but the idea is you should have democratic workplaces, which usually means some form of a cooperative, could be co-management, but some way of workers having, you know, significant say in, in the management of their workplace, right? And how the day-to-day -day business is run. Residencies and, and housing, right? So, you know, a lot of people are now pushing for community land trusts, right? So land, uh, housing that is owned collectively and managed collectively, right? So you should see this, this, the same theme show up again, which is we own it, we manage it, right? So we own and manage our workplaces so that the, account, the productive sector consists 
not of large corporations and, 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 and individually owned small businesses, but of small and large worker co-ops or, or state enterprises with significant worker participation. Uh, in terms of finance, you know, there's a long history of public banking, of credit unions. Uh, there's also new experiments uh, like the Boston Ujima Project, where residents in low-income Black neighborhoods of Boston get together and pool their savings and actually invest directly in the businesses they want to support in their community, right? So the, the easiest way for me to explain it is, imagine if your neighbors were the loan officer at Bank of America or J.P. Morgan Chase. And then finally, you know, what would it mean for us to control and own and manage our government? And that is, you know, some form of, of direct democracy. And, you know, what this has meant concretely is participatory budgeting, right? So people getting together in neighborhood and community assemblies and deciding instead of letting city councilors or state legislatures or, or God forbid, Congress decide in, you know, these smoky back rooms where, you know, all kinds of, of horrible deals get cut, like the latest one between Biden and, and the House Republicans, saying we should have a direct ability to decide where we want our public money to go. So to me, solidarity economy is what would it mean for us to own and control and collectively manage our economy, right? So this, again, it comes under many terms, and it has affinities with previous movements like council communism and anarcho-syndicalism, and you know, people call it economic democracy. The term solidarity economy itself comes out of Latin America in the 1980s, and I feel like you know, describes what, what this is about, which is solidarity, right? What if we're all in this together? That was Francisco Perez, senior economist with the Center for Economic Democracy and assistant professor of economics at the University of Utah. You can find out more about the course he described at economicsforemancipation.net. That's the number four, not the spelled out preposition for. We talked about university economics departments in the U.S. that are friendly to radical or non-mainstream approaches. Inadvertently left off the list, John Jay College of the City University of New York where you get a master's degree at quite a bargain price. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of the vitamin string quartet doing a charming cover of Pink Floyd's Money. Till next week, bye.